I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Oh, hey, everybody. We This is definitely not the first time that we tried starting this episode. But if you want to join us, you can start opening your catechism to paragraph 1135. And uh, we're, this is, Dennis, you said something like this is uh, yeah. some mediocre place in the catechism, no, right? No, this is the awesomest part, most practical, most experiential for people, most important to know, and most importantly, people don't know it and they should. Very Why? simple question. Who celebrates the liturgy? How is it celebrated? When is it celebrated? Where is it celebrated? If you don't know who celebrates, then you are going to make up a little gather-around-the-table party kind of model of liturgy. If you don't know who's there, angels and saints and stars and leaves and buds and flowers, then you missed out. The mystical body of Christ, right? There you go. It's the mystical body. It just fills me full of fire when when I hear about this. So I remember many, many moons ago when Monsignor Mannion was the director of the Liturgical Institute. And I've told this story before. It was All Saints Day, I think. And we were having Mass. And there were like six people there, including him. And he said, how many are worshiping with us today at the homily? And I thought, oh, six plus one is seven. And he said, no, millions, angels, all the people on earth who are worshiping at this moment. All the souls in purgatory are not perfectly worshiping yet, but they're still praising God. And then all of creation. That was an eye-opening moment for me because even though I thought I was smart and knew stuff, I've never heard that before. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to, uh, to talk about this Christus Totus. That should be your name, Christ. Christus Totus. Yeah, Christopher Christus Totus. Totus. Yeah. The whole Christ. Mm-hmm. What's the whole Christ? Somebody yeah. help me out. Yeah, well, I think what it means here in 1136 is that when the liturgy is celebrated, whether there's six or seven people in the room or it's just you praying, you know, morning prayer or something like that, or you're at St. Peter's Square, whatever, the entire Christ, the Christus Totus, is present. And that includes a lot, like he said, thousands. So, in fact, when the... Millions. When the... Billions. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, when the, the catechism ex- goes on to explain then this, this Christus Totus. And I suppose the first... What I, what I find remarkable about this, when it talks about uh, the first, I don't know, persons who celebrate is um right so you know if, out there kind of like your experience dennis i mean you know who's the who's the main celebrants of the liturgy and probably you know your first reaction is well the father the other yeah, priest and you know the ministers and whatnot well the first answer that the catechism gives is not the priest uh, or even the bishop or anything like that it is god the father and god the son and god the holy spirit as the principal actors of the, the liturgy Right, because if you if you go to your favorite definition of liturgy from the Catechism, right, Chris, it's the participation of the people of God in the work of God. In other words, the work of God is a priori, right? It's there before we are, and then we get to enter into that and participate in it, and uh, the whole Christ is doing it. So that, you know, 1136 says, those who celebrate even now uh, without signs are in the heavenly liturgy, so they don't need sacramental mediation. They're just 
they have direct access to the face of God, um, where the celebration is holy, that's completely communion and feast. But then we have the sacramental participation in that work of Christ offering himself in perfect sacrifice and praise through the love of the Holy Spirit. And to know that we're pulling back the curtain, the, you know, the Broadway cast is right behind that curtain and that play is going on forever, right? Mm-hmm. Every now and then you get to sing along in the in the choir. Uh, we don't make the Broadway song just by singing along at home in the shower. It's already happening and then we get to, to join in it too. Yeah. I don't know. People disagree on this, but isn't there something freeing about that? You know, that, that the liturgy is this, uh, this is objectivity to it and this givenness about it and you know i don't have to be creative or or even good at it <laughs> that's that's so true that's so i true. mean it's better if we're good at it but yeah yeah but you know the 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 trinity and the uh, you know christ the who's kind of the, the the prime minister i mean they're doing almost all the heavy lifting in this uh, liturgy mm-hmm. thing yeah, and Cardinal Ratzinger makes that point that Christianity and Catholicism in particular is the only religion in the history of the world where we don't have to be afraid that it's not being done perfectly because Christ mm-hmm. is the minister who's offering the perfect praise to the Father and he's God, right? So God can offer God perfect praise and perfect worship. However, our job is to sacramentalize it and participate in it as fully as we can to to get the most out of it. But we don't have to ever worry that God is unhappy with the sacrifice that he's receiving. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just he wants us to participate in it most fully. How do you balance how do you balance that fact with the fact that we also do want to do it well and that we don't just say like, man, you know, he's kind of doing all the stuff anyway and there's only so much I can do. Right. Because we want to do it well so that we can participate in it more fully and have it be more efficacious and a more full gift of ourselves to God so that he can transform us because he won't do it against our will. Right. So the more we're open to it, the more he's able to uh, give it to us. Chris is thinking. an analogy here. That I, yeah. Uh, you know, which might not work. Jesse, you're a Cubs fan, right? It, yes, yes. 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 Okay. So let's say uh, you want you want some. Uh, some prize and you get to play on the Cubs team or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're already, I think the Cubs and the Brewers are, yeah, I don't know. We'll leave the Brewers out of this. So the Cubs are already good. Right. Uh, uh, and so in some ways they don't need you to, to, to be good, <laughs> but you want to be good, right? So this is going to be your one chance to go and uh, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, go to Wrigley field and play on the team. So, you know, you want to do the best you can, even though, you know, your meager little efforts are not going to uh, matter much one way or the other, I suppose, whether the, the team wins or loses. So, I don't know. I was just wondering if that's a... Yeah, that's called a third base coach, Chris. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wave them in, Jesse. Wave yeah, them yeah. in. So, anyway, but you're right. I mean, uh, it's... It, uh, we, we, like Dennis says, you know, we, we do want to... Uh, we're, we're not to be... Uh, what's, what do some of those encyclicals say? Uh, mute and silent uh, spectators mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we come. Liturgy is an action and an exercise, and we have to do our part. But, you know, I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. Because are we? We are. 1137 is all about uh, the Trinity's work, and 1140 is all about our work, which means that there's a couple paragraphs between those two uh, group of uh, participants that we haven't said much about yet. The we Father and right the Son? No, no, we're talking about well, Father well, and that, Son yeah. and Spirit. 
But after that is in 1138 and 1139, it talks about uh, all of those who take part in heaven, the heavenly powers, all of creation, the servants of the old and new covenants, the new people of God, especially the martyrs, the mother of God, the great multitude, all of the angels and the rest. So, you know, it's even, you know, when we want to give a nod to the Trinity, we're quick to, to jump back to our own <laughs> earthly role in this. But there's even an, a greater body of that we're that, you know, you did this, Dennis, when we talked about, you were mentioning Monsignor Mannion's remarks that, you know, they're the, uh, the big participants. But this, too, is something that should be uh, kept in mind and kept before our mind's eye uh, when we celebrate, too, is that uh, um, even before the catechism gets to talking about our participation, it's trying to lay out in these couple of paragraphs, well, what it says in 1139, this eternal liturgy that the Spirit in the Church enables us to participate whenever we celebrate the mystery of salvation in the sacraments. Bing, bing, bing. So, 1139, right? So here's this pre-existing reality, this perfect glorification of God, this perfect gift of God, this perfect return of God's gift back to God by all these heavenly beings, all of creation. And the only people who are not part of it fully really are anything, you know, the creatures that are fallen. So uh, we, our job is to, A, know that this pre-exists us, enter into that, learn how to do it, and grow in perfection in it as members of that body of Christ that's doing all this. And that's kind of an amazing thing. We don't invent liturgy every Sunday, right? We pull back the veil to encounter the liturgy that's already happening and try to make it sacramentally present in the world. So that's why it says what you just said. It's this eternal liturgy that we enter in the sacramental life of the church. It's the eternal liturgy isn't parallel to us. It's not indifferent to us. It's not separate from us. Our job is to try to do that. So I know we're all talking about kind of analogies here, but imagine this, like, the New York Symphony was playing 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, some piece, you know, and you couldn't hear them because they're behind a curtain and you and you had your little violin. It's like you want to play what they're playing too, but it's already going whether you're playing it or not. And the more you can join in, the more you become what they are. Well, it's just like going to a live concert when you know, you know the music of the band. Like they're going to play that song the way they play it anyway, but the fullness of a concert is to join, you know, with the band and to also be singing and to participate mm -hmm. as one huge stadium of people all singing the same song, which is a really cool experience. Absolutely. And even though you're all with a bunch of strangers, you might have your arm over arm. I mean, like all these random people hug each other at Wrigley Field when the Cubs like, get a home run. It's like random drunk dudes with a solo cup in his hands. Like, hey, bro, they scored a home run. Right? That's Jesse, like, all right. Yeah. And so you see the bond of unity that happens there because that's what the 1140 mentions, that the whole community uh, has this celebration. That's why it's a, a sacrament of unity. Not only are you doing the same thing as the person next to you, you're doing the same thing with the people in heaven who you normally don't even have access to and the angels and the saints and the persons of the Trinity. And so liturgical services are not just for the people in the pews at 6.30 a.m. or 10 a.m. on Sunday, but the whole of the cosmic and uh, created order is involved in that too and unites us with them yeah i've always thought it's a matter of justice you know that not only your your priest and your ministers celebrate for you the liturgy according to the mind of the church but even the pastor who's three states away has an obligation 
to me, three states away, uh, because we're it's a matter of uh, of the community, and we're sort of all in this uh, mystical body, and we all um, celebrate together and rely on each other and uh, pray ourselves to heaven together. So, yeah, these communal communal celebrations are. Uh, um, you know, where all this lands for us on this earth. Yeah, you know why this is very exciting to me, right, as an architecture and art person. What implications do you have here if you're going to have a full sacramental experience, either for the eye particularly, or also for the ear, I guess. If you are celebrating with all of these heavenly beings, how are you supposed to encounter them? You see them in the, the paintings and the windows and all over, the mosaics. Absolutely. Right. So if your church has a great mural on the wall behind the sanctuary, and maybe that mural extends out of the sanctuary, and that's an image of Christ in glory surrounded by angels and saints, and they're you know offering worship and praise, that's a visual reminder of what you're actually doing. And so to say, well, a statue is just a thing you put in the corner for one-on-one -on -one time where the old ladies are attached to their old plaster statues. No, that's not it. That might be true. But more importantly, you get to see externalized, sacramentalized, what the real nature of this is. Same with music. Is a choir's job? Well, you know, what's a choir's job? What is the song of heaven? And how can we make it knowable to the people in the pews? And how can we lead them in singing, not just so that they feel good when they sing a song they like, but so they are actually encountering and singing the song of heaven. And so this is it, you know, this is the Holy Spirit that allows this to happen. And so this fullness of richness, um, I was thinking about this uh, Disneyland, you know, you go into Disneyland, there's Main Street at the beginning. And you just leave the world, right? You're just walking down the main street. Don't get me started, Dennis. <laughs> Cinderella. Um, I, I, I went, took our kids there and like the detail to which they make you feel like you're in another universe. It's mm -hmm. like, it's, it's incredible. Right. The, every little thing, you know? And think how much more important it is to have a church that when you step in, you say, I've left my cares of the fallen world and I now know what heaven looks like, sounds like, smells like, tastes like in the Eucharist and um, feels like even as you touch beautiful materials and oak and marble and stained glass. And so uh, all this stuff that we're talking about, it's not I like fancy stuff or look how rich we are. It's making the very nature of the church and its liturgy knowable to all the senses. Yes, Chris? Well, um so you would have some sort of depictions of the Trinity or reminders of the Trinity, principal participants, sure. and then the angels and saints. But even the yeah. kind of the floor plan, you know, the ground level, if you want to put it this way, uh, is is likewise divided like between 1141 and uh, 1142, right? So these two, uh, I don't know, what do you say, two orders or two principal ways in which participants of the sacramental liturgy or the earthly liturgy uh, celebrate is, uh, you know, the first that they talk about 1141 is those members of the common priesthood of the baptized who would, you know, generally speaking, occupy places in the nave and be offering their prayers and engaging in the dialogues and singing uh, from the nave and offering themselves from the nave uh, up to right. the altar. Which is why they have to be priests, right? Because if you're not a priest, you can't offer a sacrifice, but a baptized person shares in that priesthood and can actually make a genuine uh, offering and pleading, even though they're not the head of the body, 
they can make that genuine offering. In the temple, you know, there's the two rooms of the temple. The big room was mm-hmm. the equivalent to the nave. That's where the priests did all their priestly stuff. And it was the Holy of Holies where the high priest went. And so you can see that structure still in the head and members of the priest and laity as the high priest does the work in the sanctuary. But the priests oh. of the laity in the nave can still make a real offering through the headship of the priest. Yeah, we we are in persona Christi corpus. Yeah, right. or, uh, membris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you could say a body as well, yeah, but members of the body as opposed to the head. It's kind of like everybody wow. got a, a promotion there. The, the the priesthood became the high priest and now occupy the sanctuary. And the right, and that would be the bishop, you know, but then by extension out to the mm-hmm. ordained uh, priests. Mm-hmm. But what's really important there is you have real priestly action when a person offers themselves or offers the world to God to the degree that they have it or offer their kids or their spouse. That's a real priestly offering that all is to get, you know, collected, collected by the priest and offered the ordained priest and offered to the father. But see, there it gets you to 1142, right, Chris? Because not all the members have the same function. Imagine oh, if you yeah. tried to speak through your kidneys. It just wouldn't work. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I've never like, really thought to try that yeah, before. Yeah, well, you know, I've tried to walk on I your got, head. And, I got too many stones, can't speak. <laughs> so 1142, right, you need a head. A body needs a head. So this praying yep. body, the these, right, so... Remember, this question is who celebrates the liturgy? And now they're talking about that uh, assemblage of uh, persons uh, uh, on the world. And there's two groups. There's the the body, the members, uh, but they also need a head. And this is what 1142 is about, that uh, especially priests and bishops uh, act in the person of Christ, the head. Uh, And they... You said they they, they collect uh, words, prayers, uh, sacrifices, and through the head they offer them back to back to the Father in union with Christ. So the ordained minister, it says here, is as it were an icon of Christ the priest or a sacrament of Christ the priest. So, yeah. So they uh, receive all of uh, what the baptized priests offer and give them over to God the Father and give offer them up into this eternal liturgy that we're now participating in. Right. And you see how your own head can't get very far without your feet and your hands and all the other things that it needs. So, you know, eleven forty three talks about assisting the work of the priests in these particular ministries. So the priest can't sing all four parts of a choir, right? Plus priests doing other stuff, right? So if you want the sound of the angels and saints, which ultimately, you know, is a voice of the mystical body in some way, then you need other people. So they talk about readers and servers and commentators and members of the choir also exercise a genuine liturgical function. Now, we like to say ministry all the time. It's a kind of American word. We talk about ministers of care and ministers of greeting and ministers of donuts. You know, properly speaking, those are not ministers. We use that word, but they're not ministers. Ministers are people who actually have real liturgical functions. And um, so look at 1144. Chris, this is a good sort of wrap-up mm. moment here, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And this is a great paragraph. So in in the celebration of the sacraments, it says, it is thus the whole assembly that is lighter goss. What accord- is that? Yeah. So what it's saying is it's the whole assembly gathered uh, in the church who is the liturgist. Mm. Yeah. What does that mean? Should we put the Jesse one who on the spot offers? Here? Oh, well, sorry. I already gave him the answer. It's the one who does offering of worship, right? That's the famous Fagerbergian distinction, right? Between the liturgist and the liturgiologist. Yeah. 
Well, remember, I mean, the, the, the etymology of liturgy, right, is somebody who does the work on behalf of the people and everybody in that church from the newly baptized baby to the, you know, octogenarian grandmother is a liturgist. And everybody collectively is a liturgist because they're all engaged in working uh, their priesthood to whatever degree on behalf of the whole world. They're the mediators of uh, between heaven and earth at this moment. And so the whole assembly is made up of little liturgists and is collectively a liturgist because they're interceding on behalf of the whole world in the image of Christ and in yeah, union with Christ. Yeah. That reminds me of, uh, I might never have said this before and I may never say it again, but it reminds me of Aristotle's politics, his treatise on politics because he compares the city to a ship and how a ship needs only one captain who steers the ship and makes sure it gets to the right place, but it needs lots of rowers and different people who do different things in the ship and they're all necessary even though they don't have the same function. A city is like that too. Some people are cleaning the streets and other people are in the hospital and other, someone's the mayor and there's only one you know head of that body. But when they're all doing what they're supposed to do, then they live happily and uh, it's good uh, for the whole. And so they, you know, they end the section with um, every person carries out all and only those parts which pertain to his office by the nature of the right. So you're supposed to do everything you ought to do, even if you're not a, a lector or a cantor. You're supposed to do everything you're supposed to do in the pews. Kneel, sit, stand, sing, offer yourself, uh, receive, and um, but not anything else, right? Clericalizing the laity or laicizing mm -hmm. the the clerics <laughs> it's not what vatican II had in mind <laughs> well, I, we've probably done this etymology before of hierarchy it yes. doesn't just mean clergy it means an order like of a, 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 of uh, hieratic of priests yeah and 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 not just in you know uh, at saint mary's church at ten thirty on a sunday remember this is across the world and even extending up into the really real dimension of heaven so in heaven like that ghent Altarpiece, you know, it's not just clerical chaos. I mean, there's certain there's order and structure in different groups where they are. It's this perfectly formed city, like you're describing, Dennis. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you know, that the church is hierarchical means that, you know, all of these liturgists and all of these priests uh, are each doing only that and no more what they are called to do for the good of this this ordering of priests which is the church so that they can grow in divine life as we said in the last episode right yeah. enter into the life of god become like god to, to the degree that you are god the you know theosis and uh anything that interrupts this and makes it chaotic confusing not fully signified is going to get in the way of that process of growing into the full stature of Jesus Christ. And that's why all these liturgical precision things matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. So who celebrates the liturgy? The Holy I wasn't Trinity. listening to any of that. No, but I'll tell you, it's, the, it's Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the angels and saints in heaven. And it's uh, the church on earth, whether they're baptized simply or ordained as well. That is a lot of people. That's mm -hmm. a lot of people. There's a lot of souls. A lot, a lot of, of priests showing up. Yep. Anyway, maybe right. the next one, uh, when we come back, what, we move on to more details about the signs and the symbols at these. It's called, How is the Liturgy Celebrated? Yeah. Yeah, we could talk about how it's a sacramental celebration and it's woven from signs and so on. Well, I don't really no, know. we won't we do that. Don't spoil yeah, it. Yeah, we won't. I won't okay. ruin it for you. Hey, Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. Uh, yes? Do we have a question? No, but we'll come up with one. No, we do have, we have lots of, we actually have lots of questions. So uh, let's answer one. 
So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, we have a question from Rudiger today. Rudiger, Rudiger, Rudiger. <laughs> Rudiger says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Rudiger. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Mm-hmm. Oh my, uh, and uh, Rudiger says, uh, when installing a new altar, can you still put a relic in the altar like they used to? The answer is yes. And the subtle question is whether or not it's required, right? But the, well, uh, yeah. What, Chris? Well, how did they used to do it? That's the question. I right. think the answer is yes and no, right? Well, it used to be required. You had to have relics and they had to be martyrs. And what they used to do before the council was they would cut a little hole in the mensa, which is the slab at the top, and they would put the relics under it and then they'd put the little piece of stone back on. So if you see an old altar, you might see right where the priest would celebrate mass, you'll see like a little cutout and it's like cut the pieces put back in and with a little bit of mortar. It's like a and square foot of, right? That's about the size. No, it would, if the altar was, you know, eight feet long, the little hole would be maybe three inches square, two inches square. They cut a hole in the mensa. Oh, and okay. I guess I'm thinking of an altar stone or something. Yeah, that's an altar stone is different. a different thing. Yeah, that's okay. if you don't have a full slab of an altar. But even if you did have a full slab of stone, they would cut the top hole in it hmm, sort right. of like uh, cutting a little hole out of the top of a watermelon and they put the relics inside and then plug it back up with the piece that they just mm-hmm. got out and um that was required by liturgical law now what happened in the 70s people had these kind of wooden tabley altars and they didn't always put relics in at all because it wasn't considered binding or absolutely necessary anymore so here you go if you go to the uh, dedication of an altar from the order of dedication of a church on altar, chapter four, question, uh, paragraph 11. It says the tradition of the Roman liturgy of placing relics of martyrs or of other saints under the altar is fittingly to be retained. Okay, so, but now it says or of other saints, right? Right. So it doesn't okay. have to be a martyr That's, anymore. Okay. It's sometimes hard to find bits of martyrs, you know, they're not too many of them you know Um, more all the time right so now fitting is fittingly to be retained so that sounds like required to me chris is is that how you interpret that is fittingly to be retained yeah if you could do it you should it's not a take it or leave it it's yeah makes it retained because it's fitting it's not it's fitting so therefore you know so one of the things it says about the relics is they should be of a size that can be recognized as parts of human bodies you ever find an old reliquary somewhere and there's this little smudge of like glue and there's like three grains of sand in it like this is a relic it doesn't look like anything so um the relic should be a first class relics right that means they're part of their bodies and so uh it says excessively small relics uh should be avoided 
And then they should be uh, authentic, right? So whatever you can do to make sure they're authentic. And actually it says, this is letter B, this is uh, the same paragraph. It is better for an altar to be dedicated without relics than to have relics of doubtful authenticity. So Mm -hmm. I guess that makes it sound like it's possible to not have relics. Mm -hmm. It's just merely fitting and not required. And then this very precise point, a reliquary must not be placed on the altar or in the table of the altar. So the table of the altar is the slab on top, uh, but under the altar in a manner suitable to the design of the altar. So you see what a lot of people do these days, and it's, again, modeled on the Roman tradition, is they might have uh, a hollow part of the altar on the back, and there might be a little grill of bronze or a glass door that almost looks like an ambry, and they put the relics inside and a little reliquary that's lovely, like a a casket-shaped reliquary, or, um, you know, the usual kind that looks a bit like a monstrance. But the key thing is you don't cut a hole in the top slab of the altar anymore, which um, people sometimes do because they don't know that you're not supposed to. So the answer to all the Redegar's questions are yes, we do it. Yes, they should be martyrs. Yes, they should be big enough pieces to be look like part of their bodies. And they go under the altar and not in the top slab. All right, Rudiger, I hope that answers your question. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Uh, Dennis, how, how can they reach you these days? Well, now that Parlor is working again, they can find me at DMAC Supertaster at Parlor. And I don't think anybody has ever contacted me there yet. So you could be nobody, the first. Nobody has parlayed you? Nope. All right. And uh, per the usual, don't even think about contacting Chris. Uh, he, you just built a moat on your farm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Yep. You put, uh, you put uh, Lars down there to detract anybody? No, alligators. And, oh, okay. Got it. And there's barbed wire in his beard. A Lars, a Lars gator. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>